This show is sponsored by Headnote, helping law firms get paid 70% faster with their compliant e-payments and accounts receivables automation platform. Learn how to get paid quicker and more efficiently at headnote.com. Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, and today I'm joining you with author Maurice Postley, who's just written the book, Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel. Maurice, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Could you give my listeners an idea of what your background is and how you came to write this book? Well, my background is as a journalist. I was uh, a journalist in Chicago for more than 30 years, 25 of them at the Chicago Tribune. And I covered the federal court, state courts. I also wrote and investigated cases of wrongful conviction. And now I'm connected as a researcher to the National Registry of Exonerations, which is a three-university project, Michigan and Michigan State Law Schools and University of California, Irvine. And it is a online, it is an online database of more than 2,500 wrongful convictions in the United States since 1989. So, Criminal justice has been a focus of my reporting for much of my career. Now, I hadn't heard of Michael Siegel's case before I read your book. And when I think of wrongful convictions and exonerations, my mind immediately goes to criminal justice that is not white-collar crime, but this is a case of white-collar crime. I guess my first question is, how different was it for you to first start investigating this case compared to past cases in which there were, you know, murders or violent crimes being committed that people were being wrongfully accused of? Well, this is an interesting case in that you're right. It is a a federal prosecution as opposed to state prosecution, which the state prosecutions make up the lion's share of what we see. I won't sit here and tell you that this is a classic wrongful conviction. What I will say is that this is a case where He was convicted of a crime that seems to defy common sense and logic as to why it ever was charged as a crime. But let me back up and say that I didn't want to write this story at first. When Mike first approached me, I just wasn't interested. I had other book projects that I was working on, and I sort of thought I didn't know a whole lot about his case either, although I'd been in Chicago when the case was tried but I was looking at other things. I basically felt like this was just another sort of garden variety fraud case that the city of Chicago seems to churn out pretty regularly. But he kept after me and eventually started sending me things and I became a little bit more intrigued. And finally I agreed to read the transcript of the trial and read some of the pretrial motions in the case. And I really felt that there was an arc to this story about how he came to be prosecuted and how he was prosecuted. It's more of a story about how they did it than what happened. At this point, I'd love to hear a little bit more about Michael Siegel, the person. Could you tell my listeners who this man was, both when this first happened to him and in the lead up and the business that he had built? Michael Siegel was sort of a bootstraps guy who started 
working as an accountant in a small insurance company that happened to be owned by one of the more politically powerful people in Cook County, a man by the name of George Dunn. Ultimately, um, Mike bought the company from him and built it up into one of the largest insurance brokerages in the country, the fifth largest independent brokerage in the, in the United States. It had a thousand employees. It did about a billion dollars worth of insurance in a year. It was highly successful. He was uh, someone that was sort of well-known, you might say, in certain circles in the city of Chicago because of his, the nature of his business was that people who want contract, want insurance for their construction contracts for their business with the city of Chicago and with other government entities would come to him and, and just, you know, sticking a, a pin in that for a second, the way an insurance brokerage works is someone needs to get insurance and they would go to Mike's company near North Insurance Brokerage and say, I need to get a price for insurance to insure my construction project that I'm going to bid on with the city of Chicago or the Chicago Transit Authority or Cook County or, or whatever, the city of Milwaukee. And so Mike would, his people would shop around to insurance companies and get bids and then present them to the customer who would say, I want this bid. And so the customer essentially would say, get a rate and they would pay a premium that would go into a fund at Mike's company. And the company would then take its commission and then the premium would be passed on to the insurance company that bound or wrote the contract for insurance. And then the customer gets their insurance. That's really the basic way that it worked. And so he was very successful and he was through part of the process as a salesperson, he met a lot of people. He shook a lot of hands. He knew a lot of people. He knew people who were in office, people who were heads of companies, people who were, who were going to look for this sort of insurance. And so I personally didn't know him in his heyday. I was generally aware that he was someone that would wind up occasionally in some of the Michael Sneed's column in the Sun-Times or before that even Cup's column in the old days as you know, seen dining at Eli's with, you know, X, Y, and Z sort of thing. And that's really pretty much all I knew about him. And to go back to our story, this kind of confluence of events that led to him being sitting in the dock in U.S. District Court began when a group of his, a small group of his employees, rather high ranking, whom he later called the takeover group, decided that they wanted to, it's a privately held company, take over the company. And he resisted. And so they peddled a story that the company was losing money and that the fund that all these premiums kind of passed through, it's called a premium fund trust account, was missing millions and millions and millions of dollars. And he peddled, they peddled it to the FBI. And one day, he was uh, a former employee, asked to meet with him, and he thought it was just a routine little meeting. And instead, he was met by two FBI agents who took him up to a hotel room in Chicago, where he met with a federal prosecutor 
who said, we're investigating your company and you're going to be charged with a felony. You're going to have to plead guilty and you're going to wear a wire. And when he said, what are you talking about? He said, we want you to wear a wire and work as a cooperating individual. And he said, who do you want me to wear a wire on? And they said, anyone we tell you to. And so Mike said, no. And that was the line in the sand. It led to his prosecution. And not just his prosecution, but, and I don't feel like this is really a spoiler because you, you tell us about it in the introduction, eight years in prison. Yes. You know, this was not a small event in Mr. Siegel's life. This was a major life-altering event that happened to him. I really found, you just made a reference to the scene where he thinks he's meeting with one of his employees or former employees, and he walks into the lobby of a hotel, which is next to the building that I work in, and the man literally points to him, and it was it was very, you know, Judas and in, in the garden sort of a scene. And every part of this book, for me who works in Chicago, um, I live in the northern suburbs, but I work downtown, had such a Chicago flavor. And so many of the, the politics rang really true to me because I have lived in this city. Do you think a similar story could have happened in another city? Was there anything particular to Chicago that really enabled this miscarriage of justice to happen? That's a really good question, and I don't know how I could actually answer it. You know, people often would ask, have asked me over the years, you think Chicago is more corrupt than other cities? And I say, well, you know, it's certainly in the major leagues, and you think about Philly and Boston and Detroit, Miami. But I said, I also think that perhaps in Chicago, people seem to be pretty good at rooting it out, and that's how we know about it. Why does for instance, Chicago have, Cook County have more exonerations than, you know, almost any other county, particularly in the area of false confessions. And it's, I think they're just very aggressive. You have innocence projects and people who are very aggressive in the defense bar who root this out. Now, it is in a way sort of a classic Chicago story. It's someone who started from essentially scratch. I mean, he went to law school, he went, he got an accounting degree and built himself up through hard work and determination into a highly successful individual. And sometimes people who wind up in those positions find themselves to be targets. And one of the things that, you know, that is pointed out in the book in several places is that the federal criminal code has expanded to such a degree that you can almost criminalize anything. That was another interesting thing that you touched on. The crime that he was arrested for, was accused of during the arrest, was not actually what he was charged with when it came time for trial. Now, I know that that's certainly not unheard of, but there did seem to be some interesting irregularities and with the decisions that the prosecutors made. And I really, you know, how much of it do you think, and of course this is, you know, just your opinion here is all you can give, but how much was this animus because he was not willing to cooperate and wear a wire and how much of it was them truly believing this takeover group and their story? I think it it was a real combination. I do think that he, when you throw down against the government, the government is not used to that. I mean, they're used to people taking their cases to trial, certainly. But right at the beginning, 
the whole tactic of coming to people's homes or surprising them at, at places and saying, we've got you. The only way that you can get out now is to work with us. And it's a tried and true tactic. And I'm not going to say that they do it on just innocent people. They do it when they think that they have a case or that they have some sort of case that they have the leverage that they can be successful. And it's you need this kind of cooperation to make some cases because they're inside cases. So when he refused, they sort of had to have a, a moment. What do we do now? And so they moved ahead and what really sort of amped up the situation in this particular case was Mike Siegel had filed a lawsuit against the takeover group because they had left the company. They had gone to work for competitors. There was strong evidence that they were trying to steal business away from him, that they were disparaging him to his customers, to his old customers. There was ample evidence that they were getting leaked information from the government about uh, what was going on so that they could then disparage him to the customers, his customers, in an attempt to steal the business. And as part of this, Mike's people found out that a former employee had been breaking into their computer system for months and stealing literally tens of thousands of emails and documents. Some of it was, a lot of it was attorney-client privilege documents. And these documents were being fed to the takeover group. And the takeover group, well, there was at least one instance of these documents winding up being emailed to the FBI, the FBI agent's personal email. And when this civil case was pending, and of course you have the potential for discovery, there was a meeting in the and the federal prosecutors said, take down that lawsuit, and or we're going to RICO your company. And of course, RICO is Racketeer Influence Corrupt Organizations Act, which is a very powerful statute under Title 18 that you can use to take the proceeds of a criminal enterprise. And Mike said, no again. And so the company was indicted, there was racketeering charges were brought, and so ultimately, not only was it eight years in prison, the company was forfeited. Mike's home was forfeited. A thousand people lost their jobs. And so you circle around in this, and I'm not giving away any secret here, but who were the victims in this case? Well, all the insurance companies got their premiums. All the customers got their insurance. The company was moving right along near North, wasn't going into bankruptcy. The government at trial presented testimony, none of it through an accounting using generally applied accounting principles or any kind of audit. It was all sort of estimates based on what I call sleight of hand of bank statements to say the $30 million was missing from this. Well, Mike had hired a forensic accountant who went through it and, and turned up, a, actually there was a positive of about six or $8 million. So, you take a step back and say, how did this happen? And it's sort of one perspective. It's easy to see how it happened. They brought the charges, the defense motions that alleged that there was stolen documents, that there were 
attorney-client privilege documents that were seized without any kind of review by a taint team, that in fact these takeover group had essentially become agents acting on behalf of the FBI. There was tape recording of of Mike talking to Harvey Sillitz, his criminal defense lawyer. They never got a single hearing on any of it in court. And so sort of away it went, and he was convicted. It led to the perhaps one of the longest, and I know they don't keep statistics on this, forfeiture proceedings in the history of American jurisprudence. You compared it to Bleak House. Yeah. It's still going on (laughs) to this day. And the forfeiture verdict was to 2004. So uh, that's a long-winded answer to your question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we are going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, I'll continue talking to Maurice about his book, Conviction at Any Cost, Prosecutorial Misconduct and the Pursuit of Michael Siegel. And we'll find out how Y2K made an appearance in this book and in this case. Hey, law firms. Getting paid is fantastic, but dealing with accounts receivable is such a pain. What if there was a better way? In her headnote, an industry-leading compliant e-payments and AR automation system. Their unique blend of features cuts through the noise and helps you to get paid 70% faster. Skip the paper checks, spreadsheets, and awkward calls to overdue clients. Get paid faster with less effort. Visit headnote.com for more information. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, here speaking with author Maurice Posley about conviction at any cost. So Maurice, Y2K ended up being sort of a side character in a book with many, many characters. In fact, so many characters that you have a, a cast listing, a very helpful cast listing at the end of this book. Could you talk a little bit about how Y2K preparation ended up playing a part in this case. There was a problem in getting any kind of really good audited statement in within Near North at one point. And there was this preparation for Y2K when everybody thought that, you know, when the clock struck 12, there was going to be a, a cascade of financial collapse. I remember as a journalist at the time, I was one of my assignments was to go out at 12.05 a.m. and take out, see if I could take out money from cash machines in the western suburbs. Uh, That was sort of the level of people just had these grave fears and doubts about what was going to happen. And of course, nothing happened. But um, they brought in a new computer system to try to convert their system around the time of Y2K. And that was... It was the inability to get accurate accounting statements that the takeover group latched upon to say that there was this gigantic deficit within the company and used it to first try to leverage Mike into ceding control of the company and then to sell their story to the federal government. One wonders if they just had gotten a decent or a a good computer system that acted correctly whether this would have ever happened in the first place. Tech is important. Uh, All my listeners take that as one of the lessons from this book, definitely. I want to circle back to your long career as a journalist and choosing to work with Mike on this book. You have been involved in reporting on so many different cases and communicating with 
many, many people who were wrongfully convicted. You played a role in governor, then governor of Illinois, declaring a moratorium in 2000 on the death penalty because there'd been so many exonerations of death row prisoners. Were there any differences that you found in working with Maurice, who has this background as a, as a lawyer and an accountant and went to prison on, on these, you know, kind of white collar crimes and working with what we consider the more usual wrongfully convicted people who usually have much less in the way of personal resources? Well, Mike certainly had a lot of resources. And I mean, part of the story is one of the reasons he wanted to tell his story was because, I mean, I've, and I've said this with the idea that a lot of people think that these things can't happen to them, that they're, that happens over there, not to me. And in his case, not only did it happen to him, but he had pretty significant resources to combat it, and it happened anyway. Working with Mike was a bit of a challenge because he was so immersed in this case. It was hard sometimes to say you have to stop, you have to stop and step aside and say, we're going to tell this story in a way that not just you can understand, but that everybody who doesn't have your background can understand. And everybody who hasn't been involved with the case as you have so that they can understand it. And he was essentially such a gravely wounded person by all of this that it was sometimes hard for him to sort of see things through the prism of that I thought he should see it through. And I tried to tell the story and it really is told. I mean, there's a lot of his observations in there, obviously, but through the court documents and the court proceedings, you know, it was reading the transcript that was sort of the, ultimately the, this, the factor that got me hooked sort of on that. This was a story that was an interesting story to tell, but he has, Certainly, in one way, is similar is that he is, you could call it a crusade, but he has fought and fought and sought attention from the Justice Department about what went on in this case for years and years and years. And you see that in people who, in many cases, where they fight and file. And what you, the difference is, is Mike had lawyers, and a lot of these other people are typically pro se until they can get the unless they get the attention of, say, an innocence project or a pro bono law firm is willing to come in because they don't have those kind of resources. I found it very moving when I read the very end, which is a postscript written by Mike himself, because he puts forward many, many facts, just like you would expect any lawyer to do. But the pain that he went through does certainly come through. Is that one of the reasons you felt it was important to include a portion actually written by Mike himself? Uh, I thought from the beginning that he should have a, a voice in there somewhere like that because he was so passionate about it. He's lived with it. He went to prison. He had some really sort of, in some way, not unsurprisingly, but in a way, surprisingly amazing experiences in prison. The process that he went through leading from investigation to trial and post trial, I think was very illuminating about how the criminal justice system can work. Every case is different. I just always felt that it should have that sort of personal note in there because it is his story. 
And that's part of it too. It isn't just sort of like reading a black and white one dimensional transcript. These were people's lives at stake. And that, that's why I thought it was just kind of critical to get a sense of the man as well. So Maurice, this is not the first book you've written. And I'd love for my listeners to also hear a little bit about uh, your other books and the other topics that you've spent this kind of time on. Thank you. I'd love to do that. I'll do it actually in a little bit out of order because I have another book coming out this summer, actually, in June, if I can say that. And you mentioned George Ryan. I helped George um, write his memoir on how he stopped the death penalty. See, I didn't even know that. Oh, my goodness. And it's coming out in June. I actually think it's quite a, a great story. I, as I was in Chicago writing about some of this stuff at the time he declared the moratorium and then ultimately when he emptied death row and commuted all the sentences. And so it's, a, I think, a really kind of interesting and actually gripping account of how he came to, to do this. And what's the title of that one? It's, in, it's called Until I Could Be Sure How I Stopped the Death Penalty in Illinois. Because it's a, it's a takeoff on, at the time he declared the moratorium in January of uh, 2000, he said, until I can be sure, he would not approve an execution. And of course, Illinois never had another execution. He actually presided, if you want to use that word, over the last one, which was in 1999. And that, even though there was really no doubt about the guilt of that person, still shook him up, combined with all the exonerations that we had enough to declare the moratorium and ultimately to do what he did, which was to empty death row, the largest such action in American history by a governor in terms of death row. The first book, Rick Hogan, my good, good, good friend and colleague at the Tribune, and I wrote called Everybody Pays, Two Men, One Murder and the Price of Truth, is a story of a man who testified against Chicago's most prolific hitman, Harry Oliver, and how the case, that case was sort of a, a footnote in history because it's, it's to this day, as far as I know, the one and only time that someone was acquitted of a murder and then retried and convicted seemingly lying in the face of double jeopardy. It's a, that's a, an amazing true story of the man who faced off against a hitman. I wrote a book called The Brown's Chicken Massacre, which was how they came to solve the murders of the people in the uh, Brown's Chicken in Palatine, which was a, a sort of a, again, how did it happen? How did they do it? And that was, you know, back in the early days of DNA, where a crime scene technician said they found one half-eaten chicken meal in the garbage and said, save that. And ultimately, when DNA caught up, they were able to get saliva tested, get a profile, and ultimately linked to the real killers. It took a long time, but they eventually did it. And then a book that I collaborated uh, with another professor called Hitler in the Crosshairs, and it's the true story of a a GI in World War II who wound up leading a raid into Hitler's apartment in Munich as the city was uh, being seized by the Allies. Of course, Hitler wasn't there. He was up in the bunker in Berlin, but he led this raid not knowing what was going to be in there. In researching that story, it started 
with the son of a pastor who remembered his father showing him a pistol when he was five years old, saying that that was Hitler's pistol. And unraveling that story and going back to this soldier wound up taking the pistol from Hitler's apartment, giving it to his pastor, like you do. Unraveling the story, we discovered how a, a German officer, military officer, had um, raised a small silent army of people, sympathizers, to protect Munich from the total destruction and revolted against the Nazis as the Allies came close to taking Munich. It's a, that's kind of an amazing story that I never expected to, to tell or to find. Maurice, if my listeners are interested in looking up any of those books or in getting in touch with you, where could they do that? They're mostly out of print, but you can find them on Amazon still. But anybody who wants to reach out, I can help them find them. It's My email is easy peasy. It's my name, mauriceposley at gmail.com. Well, thank you, Maurice, for coming on to talk about conviction at any cost. And thank you to my listeners for joining us for this episode. If you enjoyed it, please rate, review, and subscribe on your favorite podcast listening service.